Hello and welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, the second edition. This is your host, Scott, the anesthesia resident. Welcome back to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast. We are here for episode 18 today, and we're continuing on with the OB Anesthesia series here. And now we're going to run into a three-part series of the management of high-risk parturients. This first part is going to be about hypertensive disorders, diabetes, and obesity. And the next ones will be about obstetric hemorrhage, advanced maternal age, preterm delivery, substance use. And then the last part of the high-risk parturient episodes is going to be about heart disease specifically. And in this particular episode, we're going to briefly first talk about the different types of hypertensive disorders that uh, you will experience in pregnancy and we'll go in-depth with preeclampsia, eclampsia, the pathophysiology behind that, as well as management considerations for preeclampsia. And then we'll go over diabetes in pregnancy and kind of uh, see the considerations for that. And then lastly, the uh, considerations for obesity in pregnancy. Okay, so that's the outline of this episode. Um, if you have the time, I would appreciate it if you take the pre-survey. That's a link in the description. This way I can have some information on whether or not you guys learn anything from this podcast and episode and uh, kind of helps me get feedback on how I am doing, basically. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So regarding hypertensive disorders, that is applicable to pregnancy, there's generally four types of hypertensive disorders. There are gestational hypertension, chronic hypertension, chronic hypertension of superimposed preeclampsia, and preeclampsia eclampsia. So basically, it starts to get worse and worse as you keep going up. So regarding the different types of categories, we'll start by talking about a little bit of uh, gestational hypertension. And basically, as the name suggests, this is hypertension that's developed during pregnancy. So the formal definition is the development of hypertension after 20 weeks into gestation without proteinuria or severe features of preeclampsia. So again, uh, definitely pay attention to these definitions because it's high-yield board questions that could come out of these. Okay, so gestational hypertension, development of hypertension after 20 weeks into gestation. Okay, next is chronic hypertension, and chronic hypertension is defined as a patient that has high blood pressure before pregnancy, especially before 20 weeks gestation. So again, chronic hypertension is if they have the blood pressure going into the pregnancy or before 20 weeks, that's defined as chronic. But if they get high blood pressure after 20 weeks of gestation, and it's gestational. Okay, those are very important distinguishing features to categorize the, the hypertensive disorders. Okay, next is the chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia. And essentially, as you already know, it's like the blood, high blood pressure that's present before 20 weeks gestation, but then this one is accompanied by new onset proteinuria and, and or other signs of preeclampsia. And generally speaking, per the American College of uh, Obstetrics and Gynecologists, the recommendations is if blood pressure is less than 160 systolic or less than 110 diastolic, then there's no treatment necessary. But if the systolic is greater than 160 or the diastolic is greater than 110, then it's recommended to treat that blood pressure. And as a review, 
The antihypertensive medications that is good for pregnancy is generally things like labetalol and nifedipine. Okay, so that's the third category. Next, and this is where we'll spend most of our time in this episode, is talking about preeclampsia and eclampsia. So it'll be helpful to kind of understand the definitions of these disorders. And we'll kind of go about it uh, one by one. So preeclampsia is defined as the hypertension with proteinuria or any other severe features. So just to list them, the severe features out to you, they are the following. So severe hypertension, so systolics greater than 160 or diastolics greater than 110. The patient has thrombocytopenia, so basically platelets that's less than 100. If there's impaired liver function, renal insufficiency, so for example, if it's creatinine is greater than 1.2 or doubling of the, the baseline creatinine, if the patient presents with pulmonary edema, and lastly, if they present with new onset cerebral or visual disturbances. So those are the severe features, and it's possible to have a preeclampsia without severe features. So basically, they have the high blood pressure with proteinuria. However, they don't have any of the other severe features that uh, we just listed. So sometimes when you have the patient come up and the OB team's talking to you about a patient, they can say preeclampsia with severe features or without severe features. Okay, so that's uh, the definition of preeclampsia. And basically, eclampsia is pretty much all the above, all the stuff that we talked about preeclampsia, but with the presence of seizures. So that's when it's full-blown eclampsia. And uh, we'll kind of talk about the management of that in, uh, later on in this episode. Now that we got the definition of preeclampsia, eclampsia, and the other hypertensive disorders out of the way, Let's talk about the pathophysiology of preeclampsia and eclampsia because I think that's actually pretty interesting. And generally, the mechanism for preeclampsia is basically unknown. We don't have like an exact pinpoint cause of the eclampsia, but there are certain proposed mechanisms. And a fun fact about preeclampsia is it's actually unique to human pregnancies. So any other mammals, they don't encounter this, this problem. And is, so it's specifically to humans. Okay, and the first of the proposed mechanism is there's an imbalance of placental production of prostacyclin and thromboxane. thromboxane. So prostacyclins are prostaglandins involved with vasodilation made from the arachidonic acid through the Cox pathway. And it's kind of responsible for increasing placental blood flow, which decreases urine activity, decreases platelet aggregation, and it decreases vasoconstriction. So if you put into a nutshell, prostaglandin is, or prostacyclin is the thing that keeps blood moving. It dilates everything, it keeps, it prevents platelets from stopping the blood flow, and it prevents uh, vasoconstriction, so it keeps blood going, prostacyclins. And thromboxane, on the other hand, is kind of the, the opposite of prostacyclins. And basically, thromboxane is a lipid in the eocosinoid uh, family. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Um, but anyways, it's also produced in the arachidonic acid pathway. And as I said, this is kind of the opposite of prostacyclins in that it's a potent vasoconstrictor and it actually facilitates platelet aggregation. And basically, in the usual 
physiology, these two things are in balance with each other. It's like checks and balances. However, in the setting of preeclampsia, there's going to be unequal production of these two substances. So in that you have a lot more thromboxane as opposed to prostacyclines. And it could be said that it's seven times the amount of thromboxane compared to prostacycline in preeclamptics. And the the interesting thing that I learned during my OB rotations, I didn't understand why every every patient with preeclampsia wasn't on, on aspirin. I thought it was more for like, you know, anticoagulation kind of uh, properties. But it's actually because of this issue, right? Because uh, both of these uh, substances are through the arachidonic acid pathway, through uh, through the, the COX pathway, remember aspirin is a irreversible COX inhibitor. So if you prevent the production of thromboxane, so it will reduce the likelihood of having this imbalance because you're blocking that pathway from making the thromboxane and the prostacyclines. So I, I don't know, I just thought that was a fun fact. Okay, so that's the, the first proposed mechanism. And this is going to play a role in the presenting factor. So uh, keep that in mind. But the next one is uh, basically an inhibition of normal trophoblastic migration of placental arterioles during the second trimester. So basically, without these placental arterioles during the second trimester, it prevents the low resistance and high flow placental circulation. So as such, you're going to have a lot more resistance and then you're going to have uh, as a result, higher blood pressure. Okay, so that's the second one. Third proposed mechanism is things like endothelial dysfunction. So basically, there's an imbalance between the proangiogenic factors. So VEGF, if you remember from like first, second year med school or whatever, and um, anti-angiogenic factors. So things like soluble M- FMS, uh, like tyrosine kinase 1. So basically, kind of like the prostacycline thromboxane, the checks and balances of proangiogenic factors and anti-angiogenic factors is kind of unbalanced. Okay, so that's endothelial dysfunction. And last known proposed mechanism is increased sensitivity to angiotensin II, which possibly there's anti-autobodies to angiotensin AT1 receptor, which is going to increase the blood pressure for the, these patients. So... Yeah, so those are the main proposed mechanisms. And then the general theme is basically an un- a disruption to homeostasis, a disruption to the balance in a system between vasoconstrictive properties and platelet ag- aggregation and vasodilation and decrease in platelet aggregation. So all of that, all those proposed mechanisms, maybe it's one, maybe it's all of them combined, but the end product is going to be placental ischemia. And then it's going to cause this sort of feedback loop. Because you're having decreased perfusion of the placenta, whether it's like uh, increased vasoconstriction or lack of proangiogenic factors to allow for more blood vessels to perfuse the placenta, the placenta is going to try to compensate for the lack of blood flow by increasing the urine renin uterine renin and increase uh, its angiotensin. So basically, it's going to try to increase the, the, the pressure to increase perfusion. So 
As a result, you can have systemic vasoconstriction, which leads to dehypertension, which too much of vascular constriction is going to lead to tissue hypoxia and eventually endothelial damage. And when you have endothelial damage, you're going to have platelets to aggregate at those sites. Because you remember, that's part of the, the pathway for coagulation, right? Remember from the trauma episode, if there's endothelial damage, it's going to expose things like the tissue factor and then platelets kind of just aggregate, right? So because of the severe hypertension and tissue hypoxia leads to the endothelial damage, platelets aggregates at that site and it causes a consumptive coagulopathy. So that's why we'll kind of talk about this later, but things like HELP syndrome, where you have low platelets, that this is why you have low platelets in patients with preeclampsia and especially HELP syndrome. Okay, so that's super important to, to understand. And again, when you have the increased uterine renin, you're going to increase the aldosterone secretion due to RAS system, and that's going to increase the sodium reabsorption and it causes edema. So that's one reason why um, these pregnant patients, they have such edematous legs. And then you can't put in a foot IV because you can't see squat. Okay, so I hope that makes sense. I hope I didn't uh, ramble too much on it. But again, basically, the idea is there is an imbalance in vasodilation versus vasoconstrictive properties, which ultimately leads to placental ischemia. And to compensate, there's like this positive feedback loop where it releases more factors that increases the blood pressure. And then too much of that increase causes tissue hypoxia, causes endothelial damage. Okay, so that's the general idea. And now moving on, uh, talking about the different stuff. So like uh, proteinuria uh, is generally the result of tissue degeneration, which basically it clogs up the kidneys. So like a bunch of fibrin deposits, it clogs up the, the glomerulus and causes a constriction of the glomerular vessels. And by causing this backup, you can have increased permeability to proteins. So that's why you have the proteinuria. And uh, specifically during pro uh, this setting, you have a decreased production of prostaglandin E as well, which is a vasodilator. And that's going to worsen the, the kidney function. And Lastly, I'm not quite sure where, how I put this into this section of the notes, but uh, speaking of HELP syndrome, H-E-L-L-P, it's, it's pretty much an acronym. So then uh, it stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets, or basically thrombocytopenia. So, okay, so that's the basically pathophysiology of uh, preeclampsia. Now let's kind of talk about how severe preeclampsia and eclampsia kind of presents and we'll go through it in uh, organ systems to kind of help categorize the different effects. So again, it's a multi-system involvement for severe preeclampsia and eclampsia. The usual classic presenting symptoms are things like headache, vertigo, cortical blindness, hyperreflexia, as well as seizures and full-blown eclampsia. So starting from top down regarding neuro, you have focal cerebral hypoperfusion. And this is due to the intense basic constriction of the precapillaries and eventually it leads to hemorrhagic necrosis. So you have a lot of bad things happening here. You have cerebral edema that is secondary to hypoxia. You have seizures, which is secondary to petechial hemorrhages. And 
This is actually one of the leading causes of deaths with patients with preeclampsia. About 50% of these deaths are attributed to cerebral hemorrhage and edema. So that's something to keep in mind. It's actually one of the big board relevant facts. So uh, one of the leading causes of patients with preeclampsia is going to be cerebral hemorrhage and edema. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that there's like a poor correlation between hypertension and the seizure. So even if the patient has super high blood pressure, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to automatically get seizures. So that's neuro. Moving on to ophthalmic. So basically you have visual blurring or blindness for some of these patients. And this is due to intense ocular arteriolar constriction. So again, remember, preeclampsia is basically a disease of vasoconstriction. So if you're Squeezing down on the vessels that's supplying the eyes, you're not going to be able to see anymore, right? So that's ophthalmic. Next, cardiac. It's possible that patients with preeclampsia or eclampsia has develops heart failure, and this is secondary to the intense peripheral base constriction. So basically, as well as increased blood concentration, because again, we're running to the steam again. Preeclampsia is a disease of vasoconstriction. So if you have too much afterload, the heart is going to have to work harder to push against the afterload. And then eventually, if it's severe enough, it's going to cause a component of heart failure. And as it's trying to work hard, it's going to develop a possibly develop left ventricular hypertrophy. And then other sort of uh, complications is subendocardial hemorrhages, as well as fatty and hyaline degeneration. Okay, Card- that's cardiac. Next is pulmonary, and in very severe cases, you can have a VQ mismatch. But the most important thing for these patients is there's going to be airway edema. So then the patients, pregnant patients uh, at baseline are going to be difficult airways, but patients with preeclampsia are possibly going to be even more difficult. Okay, and in a certain subset of patients, they could develop pulmonary edema. So pretty much in like 2% of cases, And usually this pulmonary edema is secondary to heart failure, circulatory overload, and or aspiration of gastric contents during seizure episodes. Okay, for hepatic, so it's possible to have periportal necrosis secondary to the decreased blood supply. It's possible to have epigastric pain secondary to subcapsular hemorrhage. So remember, this is one of the presenting symptoms that you'll see in board questions, right? Patient with the proteinuria, high blood pressure, and then they present with left upper quadrant pain and epigastric pain. And this is due to subcapsular hemorrhage. Okay, so if it's severe enough, it's possible to extend the hemorrhage into the abdominal cavity. And then that's going to turn into the emergent X-lap in the middle of the night. All right, so speaking of which, this is why you have elevated liver liver enzymes on uh, labs. So you can see elevated AST, LDH, ALKFOS, but you have a normal bilirubin. So again, remember HELP syndrome, elevated liver enzymes. So this is due to periportal necrosis. Okay, next, kidneys. So as we kind of mentioned, one of the features of severe features of uh, preeclampsia are increase in creatinine, either greater than 1.2 or doubling at the baseline. So this is due to the decreased renal blood flow and glomerular filtration. And this is secondary to smelling of glomerular endothelial cells and fibrin deposits like we discussed previously. 
and essentially what it causes is constriction of the capillary lumen. And this kind of affects the uh, management of fluid and electrolytes because there's going to be a shift of fluid and proteins through the extravascular space. And this is going to cause hypovolemia, hypoproteinemia, and hemoconcentration. And lastly, we're going to talk about the hematologic effects. And we mentioned this earlier, but it's going to cause a consumptive coagulopathy and thrombocytopenia from the adherence of platelets at the sites of endothelial damage. So again, when the endothelial cells gets damaged, platelets kind of aggregate there, and as such, it uses up the available platelets and you have a decreased platelet count or thrombocytopenia. Right? And the interesting thing is the plasma fibrinogen is usually going to be normal unless it's in a setting of placental eruption, which we'll talk about in the next episode. Good thing to get for these patients is a coagulation study, so PT and PTT. If there's any prolongation of these, it's indic- indicative of a consumption of a procoagulant. So now that we've talked about what the different hypertensive disorders are, what the preeclampsia and eclampsia are, and the, how it affects the different organ systems and the pathophysiology. Now let's get to the actual fun stuff and kind of talk about the general management uh, patients, especially those with preeclampsia and eclampsia. So basically the definitive treatment for eclampsia is going to be to deliver the fetus and the placenta. And generally the goals for treatment is going to be fourfold. So one is to prevent and control any seizures. Two is to improve organ perfusion. Three is to normalize blood pressure. And four is to correct any coagulopathies. So if a patient has no severe features that we kind of discussed earlier, basically normal management. But expect delivery starting at 37 weeks gestation. But if a patient presents with severe features with non-reassuring fetal status or beyond 34 weeks, the standard for this is going to be to deliver the baby and to continue aggressive hypertension treatment 24 to 48 hours after delivery. And regarding the actual blood pressure management, the the main idea is to reduce risk of cerebral hemorrhage and to improve perfusion. Because remember, as I mentioned earlier, one of the leading causes of death for patients with preeclampsia or eclampsia is cerebral hemorrhage. And uh, we kind of mentioned earlier, but the main medications you can use for these proturient patients are four things, hydrolyzine, nitroprusside, nitroglycerin, and labetalol. And these ones are generally good for pregnant patients specifically, especially betalol and hydrolyzine are being the most common. So speaking of most common, most common hydrolyzine is the most common uh, vasodilator as this also helps increase placental and renal blood flow. Um, and in some severe cases, you can use nitroprusside as it's a vasodilator and is useful to prevent dangerous elevation of systemic and pulmonary artery blood pressure. This is especially if uh, you're concerned for about blood pressure peaks during intubation. Okay, regarding uh, hematologic correction, if there's any concern for a consumptive coagulopathy, they may require blood products. And if this gets super bad and severe coagulopathy, a neuroaxial procedures is going to be contraindicated. So for these patients, if you're concerned about a coagulative picture, getting a tag would be a good idea in addition to other DIC sort of labs as well, including things like fibrinogen. Okay, so if a patient has seizures, let's talk about seizure management. 
First, you're going to have uh, O2 supplementation as needed for, for these patients. To try to break the seizures, you can either give midazolam, or the brand name is Versed, 2 milligrams, or perhaps you can also give propofol, like 20 to 40 milligrams at a time. If you're concerned for any possibility of an unprotected airway, the gold standard is going to be intubation. Okay, so the other, uh, other than uh, the midazolam and intubation, one of the gold standards for managing these seizures, aside from delivering the baby, is to provide magnesium sulfate. And the way you do this is you have a loading dose of four grams IV over a course of five minutes, then one to two grams every hour. So if the patient has another seizure, give a second bolus of two grams over five minutes, and hopefully that buys you enough time to deliver the baby. Okay, and there's a few notes that you should know about using magnesium. It could cause mild peripheral arterial vasodilation. So as such, this will have will cause hypotension, and this could be synergistic with the hypotension that's associated with regional anesthesia. So definitely be careful when using magnesium as well as neuroaxial techniques. And as such, a good idea to, to have is to hydrate the patient with IV fluids and definitely, definitely, definitely have vasopressors available just in case. So another thing to know about magnesium is actually pretty neuroprotective for the fetus as it uh, also reduces the risk for cerebral palsy. And lastly, the interesting thing is that it actually potentiates depolarizing and non-depolarizing muscle relaxants as it decreases the amount of acetylcholine cleared from the motor nerve terminals, which decreases the sensitivity to end plate to acetylcholine, and as such, it's going to decrease the excitability. So again, the notes on magnesium, it causes arterial vasodilation, so you're concerned for hypotension, it's good for neuroprotective effects, and it's going to potentiate any neuromuscular blocks. Next is anesthetic management. So generally, you can either go one of two ways. You can go neuroaxial or general anesthesia. Uh, neuroaxial, so again, it consists of either doing like epidural, a spinal, or a CSC. Just make sure that the patient doesn't have like a severe coagulopathy going on. But if you're doing this, the block needs to extend to T3 to T4. And to prevent hypotension, as we discussed earlier, having adequate fluid resuscitation having left urine displacement to avoid aortal caval compression and to have vasopressors available is going to be key to supporting these patients. So that's neuroaxial. And uh, if you're doing GA, of course, as we discussed in the previous episode, you're going to do rapid sequence intubation and assume that it's going to be a difficult airway. So make sure you have all your backup airway equipment ready. So things like video laryngoscopy, having LMA, those kind of things just in case. And it's important, especially for these preeclamptic patients, to avoid the hypertensive response to laryngoscopy and extubation because they are very stimulating and it's going to make their pressures go through the roof again. And the fortunate thing is there's various options you can use to kind of prevent this. First, you can use like, things like lidocaine. It's a one milligram to for kilo or per kilo dose. You can use esmolol, one to two milligrams per kilo Remifentanil, 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilo. Lambetalol, so basically 20 milligrams bolus or uh, a, as a drip. Nitroprusside drip, or you can give hydrolysine 5 to 10 milligrams. 
And again, the goal uh, for these preeclamptic patients is to prevent the cerebral hemorrhage and to improve organ perfusion. And it's a good idea to avoid using any sort of drugs that increases blood pressure for induction. So things like ketamine or ergot alkaloids is, uh, should be avoided. And again, if you're doing GA and you're using, you're giving magnesium as well, avoid a defasciculating dose of vacuronium uh, at induction. And remember that MAC could potentiate hypotension and increase pressure requirement. Okay, so that's hypertensive disorders, especially preeclampsia, eclampsia. Now we're going to touch upon diabetes and pregnancy. Regarding epidemiology, basically this occurs in 3% of pregnancies. We're going to talk about gestational diabetes as well as existing diabetes for pregnancy. So gestational diabetes is defined as diabetes that is first diagnosed during pregnancies. And this has uh, various adverse outcomes that has increased for these patients. One, it could cause macrosomnia. Two, it could cause neonatal hypoglycemia. Three, is hyperbilirubinemia. Four, is intrauterine fetal demise. And five, it increases the risk for obesity and diabetes later in life for both the mom and baby. So that's why treating diabetes during pregnancy is pretty aggressive if they're getting the prenatal checks. So that's why the GOAT standard is to start with insulin as opposed to doing things like metformin or any other medications during pregnancy. So if the mom has a pre-existing type 1 or 2 diabetes, that's also associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes. For a fetus, it's possible to have congenital malformations and for the mother, it could have worsening vasculopathy, nephropathy, and retinopathy. So for these ones, having uh, prenatal checks is going to be super important to have. That way they can tightly control the glucose before, during, and after pregnancy. And speaking of glucose control, the goal is going to be actually, again, very tight. So 60 to 120 is the goal. And if the fasting glucose is greater than 100, the patient's going to need some insulin. And regarding anesthesia considerations for these patients, basically, you can use any other, any uh, sort of anesthetic technique, technique for this, uh, either neuroaxial or general anesthesia. So there's none superior to others in terms of diabetes. And something to note is just that insulin requirements generally decrease after delivery. Okay, so that's diabetes. And lastly, we're going to talk about briefly obesity and how to manage it in a perioperative period. So basically, obesity, as you probably already know, increases risk for a lot of stuff. It increases risk for antenatal comorbidities. So having chronic hypertension, they're going to, could develop diabetes, it could develop preeclampsia, and there's other related risk as well that's elevated. So you can have fetal congenital cardiac anomalies with obesity. You can have macrosomnia. You have shorter dystocia for the baby. They have abnormal labor, even failed inductions of labor for, for obese patients. And essentially, it increases the risk for the need for C-section in patients who are obese, especially emergency crash C-sections. Regarding anesthetic considerations, Again, airway, airway, airway is going to be very difficult for these patients. Not only are you pregnant, but they're big. So you're going to have probably like a mom potty four. You have a very thick neck. You have a lot 
of airway edema. So expect a very difficult airway and have the necessary backup plans to manage uh, that patient. Even consider awake intubation if it comes down to that. Okay. Also regarding analgesia, an possible thing you can do is have continuous neuroaxial to maintain airway. So you don't, you don't have to deal with the airway in, in general. So doing an epidural or a CSC, it's going to be a good idea for these patients just so you can avoid having to intubate these potentially disastrous airways. I don't know if you're getting the steam here, but uh, pregnant patients are scary airways. And if you had pregnant and obese, then it's just like game over. So either one, try to go neuro, neuroaxial if possible, but if not, have a lot of backup plans in case uh, one fails. Okay. And lastly, patients who are pregnant and obese have an increased risk of death compared to non-obese patients. And this is usually secondary to things like infection, diabetes, preeclampsia, thromboembolism. And lastly, as I mentioned earlier, airway difficulty. All right. So that concludes this episode on part one of high-risk parturians. I hope you guys got a lot out of that. Sorry if I rambled on and on for about preeclampsia, but I don't know, it's, it's pretty interesting. Now is a good time to do the post-survey if you have the time. And again, this helps me kind of determine if you're learning anything and if you have any suggestions or on improvement for the podcast. Okay, so uh, today I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I'm going to give you a joke. And this one is when I literally Googled joke and it says, why did an old man fall in the well? Because he couldn't see that well. So thanks for listening. This is Scott, the anesthesia resident, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.